Welcome to the Self-Helpful Podcast, where we break down the classic and cutting-edge wisdom of self-help to discern how to actually make positive change in our lives. I'm Kevin Miller, and in this episode, I'm back with Sarah Faye to walk through her personal values and motives and habits in the key areas of life fulfillment so we can hear what's driven her and what does drive her to recover from mental illness diagnoses and create a movement to question the pat treatment that's become the norm in our culture and design a life that fulfills her. Sarah Ray, again, is a writer and activist on mental health, and her new book is Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnosis. Sarah journeyed through six major mental health diagnoses over 30 years, and her book's a profound journey through the ordeals of the current psychological treatment structure that we have normalized. Sarah Faye writes for many publications, including the New York Times, the Atlantic Time, uh, the Paris Review, and is an incredibly accomplished writer, teacher, and is currently on the faculty at Northwestern University, and she's founder of Pathological The Movement, uh, which you can find more about at sarahfay.org, and that's S-A-R. A-H-F-A-Y dot O-R-G. If you find value from the Self-Helpful Podcast, subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and please leave a rating and review to help others find the show and know what value they might receive. And you can connect with me always at kevinmiller.co. Well, next up, Sarah Faye's Values, Motives, and Habits. All right, Sarah. Yeah, there was, you know, in our first talk together, there were so many things, uh, a couple of things or something I wanted to ask. Like, oh, it's going to be great. You, I'm grateful you pulled one out and said, ah, that's going to fit well <laughs> in this values and motives and habits. You know, and I talked about finding life fulfillment in these key areas of life. And in the first mm-hmm. talk that we had, you talked about your own desire, not just for that momentary happiness, but you said, uh, you said contentment. And what was the other one? Contentment. Satisfaction. Satisfaction. Uh, those fall right in line with fulfillment. So love that. Well, let's walk through these together. And um, I'm, I'm eager to hear some of these. I'm grateful that I know some of them because you were so candid in your book. But the uh, first one is spiritual. And I, and I actually had a question there because you, know, you talked, and this is part of the relationship piece as well, but you talk in the last chapter of your book about, in essence, turn, the power of if I could say the paradigm shift that you got of turning the focus away from yourself and into other people. And to me, that's kind of a root definition of spirituality is when there's something Mm. beyond self. So it was neat to read that about your own journey. I love that definition of spirituality. I've never heard that before because I, I think of myself as someone, I was raised atheist actually. Um, and so don't hold that against me. All that means is my father, my father is just an ardent atheist and, and he takes great pride in it. And, you know, but as a child, it was terrifying because basically what happens after you die? Yeah. Nothing. It's blackness. You know, it's like, oh my God, that's horrible. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so I'm not really an atheist. I know who I would want that, but you know, I'm kind of nothing, which is really fascinating, but my sister converted to Judaism, which is interesting. And my mother has gone back to Christianity. So, you know, so she didn't really raise us with that, but that's something she's found later in her life. And so I feel like um, there's a writer named Paul Bowles. And he said, if you raise a child without religion, that child will never seek it out. Mm. 
And I've sought it out many times and I've wished very much that I had it so much. I mean, I'm very jealous of people who have strong faith. It's just never come naturally to me. I haven't found what that would be yet. At the same time, I've followed different spiritual paths. So I you know, studied Buddhism with Thich Nhat Hanh and, and other people, and it's, you know, gone in many directions. But so spirituality, I love that. And I think when I was ill, and that was 30 years, and I think people who do suffer from mental illness or any type of, um, you know, mental disorder will perhaps agree that you can't think of anyone but yourself. I mean, it was just a constant barely keeping it together for me, especially when I was in situations that were not healthy for me, like living in New York City with no money. And, you know, that's a rough, that's a rough ride, especially if you're not mentally well. And so that was, it was not, it, it took me getting better to be able to then turn my focus outward and to write this book. I mean, I always had teaching and my teaching has been one of my lifelines. So I think that is also what helped me survive was I have to give to my students. So you always have to do that and always showing up. And my mother and I were talking the other day and she said, you never once missed a class, not in all those years. I never once canceled. And I think that's so fascinating, you know, that because it was, that would be the, that would mean I was done. If I didn't show up, I was done. You know, like that was the one thing I made myself always do. Interesting. So, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it is interesting as you bring it up there with spirituality that I do have that I don't have in there. Uh, you know, I play with the word. I mean, we look at faith. If you talk about that, we generally think of a religious construct. Now I grew up in Christianity and I, I am a, I would say I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ today. And that's a specific thing that people have a hard time taking outside of the religion of Christianity. That's another discussion, but that is why I take spirituality and say, and, and it really is something beyond self, whether you believe in and seeing the value of that in people's lives, whether they believe in trees or, you know, the environment or, or a specific deity or whatnot. And without knowing you, I would say, yeah, reading your book and hearing your devotion to your students, to your teaching, and just the reality of you taking the time to write such a candid book that is the memoir of a lot of hardship is a desire to impart to others. To me, that in of itself is something that you see beyond just yourself and that I honor significantly. So thank you. Thank you. Well, the, the second one here is relationships. And it was interesting to see you write about that. Again, I'm going to say it a paradigm shift or an epiphany or a revelation or whatnot, because during your time of significant mental illness, it's not that you weren't in relationship. <clears throat> you were, you had boyfriends, you had you know, faculty and colleagues, you had students. I mean, you had people that you were walking with. It was actually, as you testify to in the latter part of your book, taking some solitude that was a real help to you. Mm. But point being, you did have relationships, but it seems like there was, well, you write to, uh, there was a shift though, your relationship. Well, that's what I'm going to ask. What yeah. happened after that though? Did you see, because again, you had relationships as far as as, as a community, I don't know the word you were connected with other people to some degree, but it sounds like you went forth after that with a different connectedness. Yes. A hundred percent. I mean, what happened to me is I disconnected. So I withdrew and I really pulled away and I spent most of my time alone. I mean, I never married, I never had children. So that's a really intense 
you know, types of relationship that I didn't have. I was with someone for six years. He's, he actually, we had a book party for the launch and he, his restaurant, we had it at his restaurant. He's Chris in the book. He's still a wonderful cook and, and chef now. Um, but anyway, so I did have that relationship and, and I was better. That was six years when I was doing better than any other point in my life. And I think that's why I was able to have that relationship with him. And I value that time so, so much. And, and it, that's just such a rich relationship for me. After that, I was very much isolated and I distanced myself from my family. And, and, but when I came back to Chicago, I really reconnected with them. And when I was in crisis, I mean, I will say this, um, people often ask me, you know, what, what can they do families when they're, you know, who have children or siblings or cousins or whoever it is, how can they better support? And my family just didn't give up on me. That was it. That was all they had to do is they were there. And last night, actually, my dad called and he left a message and he's reading the book and he, um, he called and it's the sweetest message. I'll save it forever. But he said, I just want you to know I'm here. Hmm. And it was like, oh, my God, dad, my dad's 82. You know, we have lunch every Sunday now, but he's someone I lost contact with. I mean, we were not seeing each other for several years, actually. And, and so that was very hard on him. And I always say families are the heroes in any mental illness story. They go through so much. They go through hell. And I know my family did, but they just they didn't always intervene. But I just always knew they were there. And that was enough for me. And it meant everything. And then when I was ready, I came back and I connected more to them. And now they're the closest people to me. But my sister saved my life on countless occasions. And my mother was on suicide watch for five years. When I was in my 40s, I couldn't live independently anymore. And I live with her. And, and it was very difficult for her. I mean, that was a lot for her to manage. And it really wore her down. And I feel if I could give her those years back, I would, but we're all very, very close now. And, and so they're my core and I love them more than I can say. And just, as I said, I, I have, I talk to my mother every morning at nine o'clock on the phone and I see my, my sister's a, you know, half, half a mile away. And I walk her dog every Saturday and I visit with her and I see my dad every Sunday for lunch. And it's just these regular moments of always knowing I, we connect and that we're always there. And, um, and I think there was a big, as you said, kind of moment or shift, and this is in my new book, but my mother was puppy sitting my sister's dog. That shouldn't have happened anyway. <laughs> we're not dog people. Yeah. So like my mom is not a dog person, but anyway, Mother was eating chocolate, dog got chocolate, poisonous to dog. Right. And so this happened, um, you know, recently, about a year ago. And um, my mom called me in a panic. Oh, my God, I don't know what I'm going to do. What do I do? It was, you know, 11 o'clock at night or something. And I was able to step up and I said, mom, don't worry. I'm getting in a car, you know, I'm in an Uber. We live in the city and I'm coming to get Augie. That's the puppy. And we're going to the emergency vet. I'm calling Elizabeth right now. And for me to step up and I went to the emergency vet with Augie and stood by her and held her as she was forced to throw up. Sorry, listeners. Yeah. But, you know, for me, it was such a magical night. And I said to my sister, this is one of the best nights of my life because I could step up finally. I could be the one who, who stepped in and helped instead of so many years of people helping me. And I could kind of pay back. And that's something I, I'm doing more and more. And it's such a sign of wellness for me. Well, I did want to pull out just for people to hear 
your testimony in the book that in your experience, so many people who do have a mental illness don't find a supportive family behind that. It scares them off. It uh, distances them, uh, alienates them maybe even, you know, their own doing, but, and the gift that it was for you to have that all along, that they were always there for you. Just for people to hear that as they deal with a family member, a loved one, a friend or whatever, who has this, that that person is going to often in your, again, experience, find themselves isolated and to be there uh, for them. So, yeah. And I just want to add, because I think it is so hard on the families. I alienated my family and they did distance. Like they, they took care of themselves. My mother, I mean, at one point it really, I wore her down. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no question. So I don't want families to think they should be strong, but I always knew they were there. Like I just knew, you know, they never severed ties. They never, and sometimes you have to do that. And I understand that, but you know, that was just so important. And, and when I was ready finally to take help and accept help, they were there and that meant so much. uh, Yeah. And thanks for saying that because it wasn't long ago, we've had uh, Nedra Tawab Glover on the show with her book on boundaries. And I could see that with somebody who is, you know, uh, mentally ill and violent that you may have to set a boundary, but you could still set that boundary. Hey, here's a boundary. You're not allowed to cross that. And if you're going to do this, you know, we do need to distance, but I am here. Otherwise, even that felt like significant to me and, and what you testify to. And again, just one thing more on the relationships, you know, have you, it's, sounds like you just talked about that stepping up and you went from, yeah, it's one thing to be, uh, uh, you know, in relationship and and pseudo connected to somebody, another thing to really see them and to be for them. And you talked about that and you testify that now. And I just, I appreciate that paradigm shift. Um, health and wellness is, is the next one. And I mean, you've had a journey there because your initial dive into mental illness as an eight year or an eighth grade, um, I mean, there were lots of ill health, uh, along with that literal physiological, you know, manifestations when you don't eat, if you don't sleep, if you are taking X, Y, Z, you know, drugs. So you've gone through that now, meanwhile, I mean, but you, you know, you talk about now you're, you're running, you're doing different things. And so, yeah, what is the, you know, coming from that, especially, yeah, the values that you have for health and wellness and how are you practicing those? I mean, they're huge for me and and they always had been. I think the difference was before I was looking for a cure for my mental illness in eating well or exercise or something along those lines. And they, and they can't do that completely. I think that's why it became extreme. So even though it's, it's absolutely crucial to eat well, I mean, I, I eat extremely well and, and most people would find it kind of annoying (laughs) because I, I eat food, you know, that looks like food and not from packages as much as I can, but I'm, you know, I'm also fine. But, um, so I do that. I also sleep is huge. And I had no idea because I was like you in that I love, I was, I'm very high energy and I can go, 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 except I can't, it comes out in other ways. And so I started to see, oh, it's a really, subtle kind of insidious wearing away that happens when you lose, when you aren't getting enough sleep. And that's been really important to me. I go to bed at the same time every night. I wake up at the same time every morning. I mean, I'm like a child, (laughs) um, but I I, I love that. Um, And then also one thing that's really helped me um, water. I know this sounds so ridiculous, but when I find myself in 
sometimes in a panic attack, I can't do this, but in, you know, my anxiety is at a pitch or I'm really feeling just those waves of sadness. I'll drink a glass of water. Hmm. I mean, it sounds so absurd, but we're 60% water. So I feel like I'm just helping the team out, you know, like, you know, here we go. Let's just try a glass of water. And sometimes it really will shift things for me. It will just stop my brain a little bit and allow me to kind of get into it. But I drink tons of water. Um, I walk outside and that I think is really important is having a lot of fresh air. I'm just waiting for someone to do a study on health and fresh air. I wish someone would, because I think it's very different to exercise indoors than to exercise outside and where you're getting fresh air. Um, And I don't think one's better or worse, but I do think there's something to be said for fresh air, um, at least for me in my life. I mean, I almost feel metabolically different. So there's all of that. There's so much more that I do um, that health and wellness that means so much to me. And what's interesting is it's not as much of an effort anymore. I mean, I'm, I think part of it is that routine is everything for me. And so I just exercise at the same day, every day. It's just not even, you know, I don't have to negotiate with myself. It's not a big deal. It's just always at the same time. And part of that is being a writer. So I write at the same time every day. And so the rest of my day kind of falls into that as well. And it revolves around my writing. Um, And that's always my priority. Well, I shouldn't say it's my only priority, but, you know, you can't write without health. So my health is first. (laughs) Um, But so I definitely... I know people think that, I mean, I am an ordered person, but I think people feel that if they're scheduled, if they have a calendar, if it's rigid, there's something wrong with that. But for me, it's freedom because I don't have to negotiate. I don't have to make decisions. They call it decision fatigue. Yeah. I'm not making you know decisions all the time. It's just, okay, that's on the calendar. Next thing, next thing. Okay. You know, so even if I don't feel like doing it, just do it anyway. It's on the calendar. Here we go. And sometimes I don't want to, and that's, right. that's fine too. Well, people can look forward. I've got a show coming up where we're going to talk about habits and kick back against some of them because you're talking about some of the, you know, when you've got uh, the ability to stay scheduled, I have uh, the very opposite, very Mm. dramatically chaotic life. And yet I have the same goal. So I have to come about them a little differently, but my motive coming back to that, and you talk about being a writer, um, that is my life. It's, it's crafting shows, it's reading books and taking notes. And now it's writing my own book and whatnot. And the ability to be creative talking about sleep. Yeah. I would rather not sleep. And yet it's the number one killer of my creative thinking and my critical thinking. And so uh, it's good timing. Last night it was, it was like eight and I had eaten dinner and I was just tired and I had the availability, which I don't always have. I just went to bed at like eight 30 and I got nine plus hours of not just sleep, but I, I, you know, I track my sleep quality of quality sleep too. And I feel like wow. a million bucks today. And uh, so <laughs> it yeah. makes such a difference. Oh my and gosh. I think the other thing is, you know, one of the best metaphors for mental illness that I've ever heard, and and especially even serious mental illness, so meaning psychosis and suicidality, is that um, it's like breaking a bone. And what I didn't know is in physical medicine, when a bone heals, the point of the break becomes the strongest part. Like that's magical to me. And I feel like- It's a great metaphor, yeah. It's, it's so, and I do feel like people with mental illness are some of the strongest people on earth. Mm -hmm. We go to a very dark place a very disruptive place. And to even be in that struggle, you're not weak, you're strong. 
because other people are not pushed to that degree. So, you know, I think we have the wrong kind of attitude or view of people with mental illness, first of all. But for me, the metaphor of the broken bone goes, I think there's several parts to it. But one thing is bones don't always heal right. Yeah. Right. So some people, the bones aren't going to heal right and they may not get well 100 percent. Some people, the bone will heal right, but there will always be chronic pain or there'll be a limp. And some people will need to take medication for that pain for the rest of their lives. So that's the best metaphor for mental illness that I've ever come up with. And for me, over 30 years, I broke every bone in my body is how it felt. Mm. So I have to live a certain way. I have to honor that. I couldn't go out and party and like, you know, like right. bungee jump or something. I mean, it just wouldn't ever, it, it wouldn't honor the life I've led and it wouldn't ever work. I mean, I don't, I don't doubt that I would get sick again. I mean, I do not doubt it. Um, most, you know, probably if I ever tried to do drugs or drink or anything like that, um, it's just not, it's not realistic to think after what I've been through. Well, I appreciate you saying that, that these are the things that you have to do to, I'm going to say, advocate for yourself, but that's a caveat. If you want to perform at the level you want, which that yes. comes back to us. That's why this show is called the values motives. Have. What are the values? Yeah. Cause if your value, if you don't have any values, then you don't need a motive and what habits do your habits of sitting on the couch, watching Netflix. So that's, that's cool. <laughs> uh, so it's just got to line up. So thanks for doing that. Cause same thing. I, I am, uh, I think we have a lot in common. I'm a, a highly, I don't know, I think everybody is, but I get billed with a highly addictive personality. I don't do good with moderation, whatever, but Man, thank goodness I want certain things and that keeps me in line. Otherwise, yeah, I would go south as well. What the next, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. The the next one here is, this is a goofy, not goofy, but it's mental health, you know, mind and mental health. But it is interesting here because there are specific, maybe you're the the one doing more advocacy. And I appreciate your, again, candor uh, in the first talk that we had that you are, yeah, it's not like you're just f- fixed and everything's done. That today you see a therapist, you are on, you said you're on a, a, a medication uh, or two. I mean, you are, and even what you just said, that you know that you could go, you could, I'm going to use that term, go south. You know, you could go off the rails again. I mean, that's there. You are not, you're not done. It's not over. It's there. So you are having to tend to. So I'll ask you again, you know, values, motives, and habits in that, that specific, your mental health. My, my new book, this is what it's all about, okay. which is we're told that mental illness is chronic and there's right. no evidence of that. And so what you bring up is a really good question. So we're told, and I was told this, the best I could hope for was remission, which meant the symptoms were just lurking under the surface and I could succumb to it at any point. Kind of like being an alcoholic. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Like you were, so I'd always have to identify someone with bipolar disorder. Um, It's just that I'm in remission now, or I'm, I'm, I'm well for now. And I, over the years when I was getting better, I was at lunch with my dad and I said, you know, dad, like, I think I'm, I think I'm well, I mean, I don't mean well, like, I think I'm cured. And I said, I'm living in a different mind. I mean, my brain is completely different. And he said, I know you do. Like he even noticed it. And so my book is about curing myself of mental illness. And that, you know, is there a cure? No, there's no magic bullet. Of course not. But I've done a lot of work and that I've, I've reached that point. So I don't believe that I would, 
I just believe I'm a very sensitive human. I'm made, I'm designed in a sensitive way. I can smell things like two floors down in my apartment building. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm just extremely sensitive. And so that is how I'm made. So drugs and alcohol and even caffeine, it's going to send me in bad places, but not necessarily into mental illness again. Um, but I think that's a really good point. But I just wanted to say that. Yeah. But I have a very, very intense kind of protocol that I follow to keep me mentally well. And I'm writing about it in detail in the new book because I want to give people it doesn't mean I have the answer, but suggestions, I guess, of what I do. And to give you an example, well, having an answer for yourself is that's yeah. 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 And uh, one example is every morning I wake up and on a pad of paper, <laughs> I just list one after another, all the thoughts I'm having just in a list, like one on each line, not a free, write, Not a diary, nothing like that. It's just one list, like one after another. They are so negative Yeah. (laughs) every morning. I mean, they are just negative to the end. And it is, you know, now that I understand that my brain is literally designed to do this, I can look at it and I can say, brain, thank you. Like, those are all the dangers that my brain sees. Like, this isn't going to work. The podcast is going to be terrible. Everything's going to go wrong. You're going to get sick. Like, you know, I mean, it's just one thing after another. And then I take the piece of paper, I crumple it up and I throw it away. Hmm. Like, okay, got it. Like you've been heard in some ways. I think our minds like danger, danger, danger. Like they need to, you know, if this sounds a little spooky, but the brain kind of needs to feel like it got its message out and it's like, okay, we got it. And now we're going to go about our day, even though we know all this dangers out there that we think. I'm going to steal that. Sarah. Go for it. No, no, literally. I mean, as we talked about earlier, like I, apparently we have this in common of just, you know, not being in touch with emotions, with our own emotions, not even knowing emotions, but not being in touch. And, um, I, I still have the tendency to just want to push them off. My therapist is saying, sit in them, Kevin, sit. That would be a great way because I think we often do that. That is unfortunately part of the human condition is have these, and we know that our thoughts are primarily negative, but even in the morning, I remember Monty Moran. So uh, one of the, he was the co-CEO of Chipotle. So, you know, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He loves life. He loves what he's doing. And he told me, and I don't know if he told me this on the show, I hope he did. And I'm not breaching something here. If it was later on at breakfast. Uh, and he said, do I wake up in the morning with just despair? So often, yeah. most of the time, just despair. I'm thinking, really? He says, yeah, not, and I have to work my way out of it. I, I know it's mm-hmm. not there. And so for your thing to write it out and to let it have a voice and get it out of there, that just so rings true. Thank you. I'll use yeah. That. And the only thing I really want to make sure everybody knows, it can be a little scary. Okay. <laughs> like, how can I be that negative? Or you can sometimes use it against yourself, which is I should be positive. Right. It's just your, it's just listening to your, it's just getting it out. It's like it's in there and you're just getting it out to get rid of it. That's all. Um, so I just don't want people to judge. Like For a while when I was doing it, I judged myself. I should oh. be more positive. I should be more grateful. I should this. That's not the practice. Like the practice is just get it out. Let it be heard. Move on. It kind of feels like the mind dump of the to-do list, I, and yes, which I'll, exactly. I do that a lot. I'll just, just get it out. So it's just get out so I can go over here and write and be creative and not be yeah distracted. Okay. Totally. Uh, next one, work, career, business. And you did mention that before that throughout even your mental illness, that your work was somewhat of a lifeline. Is that fair mm-hmm. to say? hundred um, percent. So yeah, again, hit us there with, uh, with what your, 
motive, you know, values, motives, habits are in work, career, and business. Obviously yours has grown and changed. I didn't even follow real clearly because that wasn't the point of your book, the trajectory. You know, you'd have little snippets in there today. I know today you're on, you know, faculty at, at Northwest. You're obviously writing, well, you wrote this book and you're writing that one, but then you do a lot of writing elsewhere as a paid even consultant and whatnot. But uh, yeah, so what is the focal point for you within to keep your work, career, business on the path? that you want it to be and the health that you want it to be. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer. That was just what I did. And so from the, there was just never even a career choice, which is not a wise decision, by the way, <laughs> I just don't want to encourage any young listeners. Like I should have thought about, for instance, how much money I wanted to make. <laughs> like, that would have been a good thing right, to think right. about. But so, but teaching comes very naturally to me. So I was a writer in residence in the New York City public schools, and that was an extraordinary experience. But so I've always taught and I've always written. And that has been, those are my two tracks, really. And I feel very fortunate to have those, and I want to continue to have those. Um, now that I have this book, it's become such a different thing. So I'm a literary, quote unquote, writer. So what that means, and I teach literary writing. All that means is that it has memoir in the past has not always, but has tended not to necessarily involve some sort of social justice component or like mine, where I'm really trying, I'm weaving together my story and research and information that I want people to have to change the world. Yeah. I mean, I literally just want to change the world. And so okay, I'm just going to move back to the spiritual point, just to point that out. Yes, I yes, exactly. I, I do. I want to change how we think about mental yeah. health and how we talk about it. And that now has inspired me so much to write the new book, which is about how I healed from mental illness and how we can talk about that and bring that in the conversation and stop people from feeling like they can't heal. Because how can people heal if we tell them they can't? I don't, I mean, it's, and it was so interesting. I had a conversation with someone and she was like, you can't, don't say that it's, don't say that you've healed. Don't say that it's not chronic. And I thought, why would that be, you know, why, why is giving someone hope? A down, how could there ever be a downside to it? Um, because there's nothing wrong if I had had it for the rest of my life. There would have been nothing wrong with that either. But so this is all mm -hmm. to say that my work now, especially with Pathological the Movement, which is a public awareness campaign that I started, it feels much even richer than it was before. Certainly because I'm well, I can give more to it. I mean, I should explain, yes, I'm on faculty at Northwestern, but when I wasn't well, I could only uh, teach part-time. So I should be clear, like I'm not, I, okay. I you know, I'm, I, I've never been um, full-time. I was a full-time PhD student, but that was it. And so I have definitely always, you know, had the luxury in some ways to pursue writing and which is my passion and to pursue teaching, which I love to do. That's so rare in our culture. And I'm so lucky to be able to do that. So I just want to continue to do that. Well, I'm obviously an advocate of, of writing and I, you kind of, you do kind of showcase it. There's a lot of applications. So maybe it's not the greatest, uh, wealth building strategy, uh, for, for overall, <laughs> but I like that there's a lot of applications you can write. I've written, I've done it all my life and, you know, from advertising to books and, and yeah. whatnot. I, I do a Sarah on, you know, you saying not accepting the chronic label or diagnosis of mental illness. I mean, we generally don't in a physiological sense, if you have a, if I have a chronically sore elbow, 
I'm generally going to be sent to physical therapy. I know my physical therapist well, a clinic right over here in our in our small town. You go over there to get well. I had a kid that got injured and was having a chronic back issue. She went to physical therapy. Why do we accept that from a mental standpoint and not say, hey, how about some mental therapy? And yes. So thank you for for pulling that out. Well, you know, go I, ahead. I yeah, love please. something you just said, yeah. which is, you know, chronic pain. It's so fascinating. That's the exception physically, like in physical illnesses, we assume it's going to be healed yeah. for the most part, unless something is terminal and then it's called that you have a terminal illness or chronic illness, but with mental health diagnoses, oh, you're just stuck with it. Like yeah. we're assuming you're never going to get well. And we yeah. don't, I was never told I could heal. I was never told I could get better. I was told I would have them for the rest of my life, each one, all six. And, you know, it's, it, it, that is just something that I think is such a shame. And we're just defeating so many people by saying that, especially when we have young people getting diagnoses right now, because, you know, as a result of the pandemic or the, the sort of situation that was going on even before that. And, you know, we can't let them grow up thinking that that's permanent. Well, thank you. That's, that's, Folks, that's worth the price of admission right there. There's, there's a sound <laughs> clip. Uh, the next one is money, finances, you know, wealth. And, uh, you know, we laugh about, yeah, writing is not uh, necessarily the, the the ticket to, it's not trading stocks or, or whatnot. But, um, you know, you've seen a trajectory. You're in a great place now, it seems like, with your career. And obviously, when you get a book come out, you get lots of opportunities. And so, again, what are the, for you, the the values that kind of lead the charge and how you're practicing those in your continually growing career? The, you know, the, I've always valued first that I did what I loved. Mm. My sister's funny, but she, when she, my niece and nephew, she told them, don't do what you love. <laughs> don't do what you love. Get a hobby, make the amount of money you want, do the career you like. <laughs> She's really very practical. And I thought, oh, I wish she'd said that to me, <laughs> but no, she, <laughs> but I, I, what I've realized recently is I've started to have a very different relationship with money that has been so important and so much growth that mm. money is one of those places where we have a lot of baggage and a lot of our views of ourselves come out in our views of money. Mm. So like I used to think I'll never make any money. You know, because part of that is the cliche of being a writer, but, you know, that it really was a lot of the self-stigma that I felt that I don't deserve money. Hmm. That was a lot of it. And so what I'm actually actively doing, I mean, in a big way, I've been reading finance books. I didn't know anything about money. I never learned. So I've been reading all these finance books. I have Saturday is my finance day and I sit down with my finances and I look at it and I have goals and what do I want to have for my old age. And, you know, my parents are going through it and I'm looking at what they're going through. So all of that was so far beyond my capabilities really when I was sick. But even when I started to get well, I really noticed this, you know, just negative view of myself in terms of what I thought I deserved. So I think, you know, this is something I've not thought through. So I'm just kind of speaking off the top of my head, but I, I do wonder that my hope is that as pe more and more people feel they can recover from mental illness and they do, that maybe there will be an opportunity there to then like counsel people with money. You know, how do you handle money and how do you start to feel like you deserve money um, or that you can have enough to, to live on? Because a lot of us, you know, I had filed for disability. You know, I didn't even think I could work um, because I was told I couldn't. Yeah. So 
I appreciate you pulling that out of money, having a connection to how we see ourselves and our self image. Cause I, it's part of my own story of sabotaging money because I wanted to prove I'm all about heart. I'm not about money and fame and whatever. And so I just ran every business like a ministry, which doesn't work real. It's not real profitable. Uh, but then I see it, uh, I see it significantly on the other side of people who are wealthy and pursuing that. And so fervently trying to prove themselves mainly to themselves, even more Mm -hmm. so than other people. And yeah, again, looking at that connection. So thank you for pulling that out. Um, well, the last one here, I, I title it achievements and interest because I, I'm aware that so often people, we really value, and connect to our self-image, the achievements, the things that we've done. Um, but even beyond, you know, work, just having interest. You mentioned hobbies. And yeah. that's one. Well, what, I, I see that. Is that I, what? I do that because I'm really pathetic. Really? Hobbies. I mean, I'm just totally, I mean, I do love the workout that I do and I love to walk, but those yeah. aren't really trendy. So what's fun for hobbies. Sarah though? What's just, what's, what's a fun time? Play. Well, when you said that though, and I'm writing about this in my new book yeah. and when you said achievement, my greatest achievement, honestly, is I got a cat. Uh, and you said you weren't I a love, pet person. So, uh, oh no, no, no. I'm total. Well, we weren't dog. I didn't, we didn't raise dogs. Okay, so we don't know okay. anything about dogs. Um, but I got a cat and, and that may sound silly, but for someone who couldn't take care of herself oh. to now take care of another creature and love him so much. And he's so quirky and like grumpy. <laughs> he's not like some cuddly. He's really an odd. What's, it, what's his then, name? What's his name? His name is Siddhartha. Wow. Because he we're back he to spiritual again. We I know. Back. Who okay. said I wasn't spiritual? Yeah, but I named him that because he's this he's a Burman, is the breed. He's yeah. white and fluffy and he's got a big belly. And I thought he looked like the Buddha. Oh. And so but I named him Siddhartha, which is what the Buddha okay. was before he was enlightened. Interesting. <laughs> like, That's a good And story. that is what my cat is like. But but you know, it sounds ridiculous, but it has been such a wonderful thing. I was writing the other day and I looked down and he's playing with string on the floor next to me. And I had this moment. I thought, you live here with me and I take care of you and you're happy and I'm happy. Like that was like, you're okay. And I'm okay. And that's more than I ever thought I could have done before. And I know that sounds sort of ridiculous, but it's really just been such a thrill for me because it's also hard. And as yeah. I said, he limits my quality of life at times. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, but that's been a great achievement for me. And he's my hobby too. Okay. So no, that's fair and fun and interesting. <laughs> yeah. Anything else that falls into the, Hey, if it's a, if it's, if you're just going to go play, just go have fun. What do you do? I don't. I mean, I hate to say it, but I'm not a play person. And I always think that's such a deficit in me, but in reality, it just is. And, and so I'm, I love my work so much that I love to do it, but I am a reader so that I do love to listen to audiobooks and walk. Again, these aren't technically good play things, but those are my things. And when I say walk, like I walk and walk and walk and I love to do it and listen to a book and lose myself. That's the best. So reading. And then, you know, I I have my Netflix binges on on occasion. Lose yourself. (laughs) Like everyone. Like what kind of books? What are we talking like right now? You know, just when I, what I've tried to, it used to always have to be purposeful yeah. or that's why know, I asked self-improvement. Yeah. And now what I'm trying to do is just read, I'm reading Truman Capote's short stories, like just random, you know, something that I just enjoy that I can disappear into and leave. And it doesn't, it's not going to benefit me necessarily. It's not, not going to benefit me, but everything always had such a purpose before. Mm-hmm. And so that is something I'm trying to get back to, which is just like, oh, I enjoy this 
going into this world and now I'm out again. That's why I asked because I, I, uh, my buddy Randy got me back into fiction books again. And even there I thought, well, it's gotta be redeeming and teach me something. Right. And I finally get to the point of, no, this is just fun. And so I'm reading a series right now. It's just, it's just fun, you know, 15, 20 minutes before I go to bed and whatever. And, uh, so, uh, Hey, Sarah, thank you. It's just been the most joyful conversation. Thanks for, uh, doing a part two with me and sharing some yeah. of the behind the scenes and teaching us as we go along. Yeah, please. I just wanted to, I, I mentioned that I saved my gratitude practice. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. I wanted to just remind, so my, you know, I was so anti-gratitude. It just seemed schlocky and you know, like it felt forced every time I did it or like I was being punished, like you should be grateful. And, um, but what someone mentioned to me, a friend did is I actually at home, like at night, every night I have a post-its like yeah. these three by fives and I write down a scene from my day that I loved, that I cherish, like just a scene. So it could be walking around, you know, South pond, the nature walk and seeing a beautiful dog, like whatever it is sitting with my dad at lunch. And I just write the scene out. Like I'm one little thing. And then I put them, I whip them up and I put them on a pile. And then sometimes what I do is I just stick them around my house. So every once in a while, I'm just confronted with this scene from my life of goodness and, and love and, you know, a moment that I just cherished. So that's my practice. I now. love it. Thank you so much for remembering <laughs> to bring that forward. I may take that one too. Um, Please do. These are four people. Take I'm them. so, I'm and so, adapt them. Yeah. yeah, but I'm so yeah. visual and I get so much joy from thinking back on scenes. That's what I see. It's a snapshot of my life, of my day, of, you know, of a ride, yeah. of a kid, of a, of a moment or whatever. And I love it when they just come to mind, but I'm letting that happen organically. And why not go ahead and do it intentionally at the end yeah. of the day and, and help retain that and stick it around. I love it. Thank you. Um, it's just been a joy. Totally. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Well, friends, again, Sarah Faye's book is Pathological, the true story of six misdiagnosis. And you can find her at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, sarahfaye.org. Thank you for choosing to tune in to the Self-Helpful Podcast. You can find me always at kevinmiller.co. That's the website or social media. And if you got value, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss any episodes and we can stay in touch and leave us a rating and review and help others know what they can hope to glean from the show. I sincerely hope I've helped you help yourself.